Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and welcome to our first World in 2017 special. In three programmes between now and the new year, we'll be bringing you our year-end brew of predictions and insights for the 12 months to come. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. We'll be predicting the aftermath of an extraordinary 2016 in politics. The biggest difference between a Trump presidency and an Obama presidency is probably predictability. This is happening much faster than a lot of people realise, and there's reason for being quite optimistic about India. Technology. I think one of the big tech stories next year is going to be the rise of Snapchat. Well, the world is relentlessly getting more and more connected. Business political upheaval that we've seen in 2016 is going to show itself in huge, huge economic uncertainty for 2017. The reason I'm still somewhat optimistic is because this AI will generate a lot of um, money. And exploring everything from the view from Bhutan to Brexit. The rise of populism uh, is an indicator that governments are not doing enough. There there may be demands for, for for a rethink and possibly even a fresh referendum. My name may not be on the ballot, but our progress is on the ballot. Tolerance is on the ballot. Democracy is on the ballot. And I promise you that I will not let you down. So first, we'll take a look at the world in invention, looking ahead to the changes and trends in science and business that we think will define the year to come. And throughout these programmes, I'm going to be joined by Daniel Franklin, the editor of The World in 2017, our annual collection of predictions. You might call him our chief soothsayer. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Anne. The World in 2017 will be the 14th publication of this type that you've edited, Daniel. Why do we do it? Well, the 14th that I've edited, but actually the 31st that we've done overall, it's a bit bold, it's a bit risky because you will inevitably get things wrong. But it's proved to be extremely popular. People like the idea of challenging themselves to think about the year ahead and what might be uh, useful to know. Well, we thought for our Economist radio take on what you're doing that we would look at the world, would turn the globe perhaps and and look through the prism of, of Asia. We came along, you were kind enough to let us hitchhike with you to Hong Kong, to China and to Singapore and to look at what's happening in the world through the eyes of some of the big change makers in Asia. Well, I think it it is interesting to look at the world through an Asian perspective. It's obviously a huge chunk of humanity. It's the most dynamic part of the world economically. And at a time, I think particularly when, for example, the election of Donald Trump and the new Trump presidency is what a lot of the focus is going to go on in the year ahead, I think it makes it particularly fascinating to say, well, how does the world look through the prism of this hugely important part of the world. 
First up on our tour of Asia was Kai Fu Li. He's the former head of Google China, and he's worked for most of the American tech giants, including Apple and Microsoft, getting his start as a pioneer of speech recognition technology. But now he's looking to help nurture the next generation of Chinese talent. His venture capital firm Innovation Works principally invests in growing Chinese tech startups, and he's become one of the most influential people in China's technology sector. So I met up with him at his office in a bustling area of Beijing, known as China's Silicon Valley. Give me a sense, if you could, of what you think two thousand and. Seventeen will hold in your sector. We're very excited about the space because the Chinese、um, engineers are now able to do as good engineering products as the、um, Americans can. So the Chinese、uh, mobile products are catching up and even leading in quality in some cases, and also in the advanced areas like artificial intelligence,、uh, robotics, autonomous vehicles. The Chinese companies are moving very rapidly. As more of the underlying fundamental technologies are known, the Chinese engineering dedication and engineering excellence is propelling China forward. Are you thinking mainly of the domestic market, or are you thinking of this long-awaited day when we'll see more Chinese? You know, big brands on the digital market for 2017 and perhaps even 18, 19. I'd expect most of the growth to be domestic, but China is the world's largest market. It's homogeneous. The Chinese companies can dominate here. I think when I started Microsoft in 1998, if you ask the graduates, you know, what's the hottest company that you wish you could work for, they would have said Microsoft. In 2005, when I started Google, they probably would have said Google. Uh, I don't think either Microsoft or Google will be on the top list of um, desirable um, employment or or a startup. I think most of the top students will want to um, um, start a company for themselves. Give me an example, if you could, particularly from the areas that I know you you know you've developed in the past, speech recognition and those、right. you know, the areas that we're expecting to come on in a leap and a bound.、Mm-hmm. What makes you so sure that this year ahead is particularly special? What are the conditions that would lead to any big sort of quantum leap?、Uh, we're most bullish about artificial intelligence, and that certainly includes the recognition of uh, speech, uh, language, uh, face, and objects. But it also includes、uh, sci-fi types of applications like、um, autonomous vehicles and and robots. And also on the other extreme, it also can be applied to. A, Normal traditional businesses, banks making better asset allocation, better credit card fraud detection,、uh, better loan determination. We already have companies that、uh, do face recognition twenty、uh, times better than humans. So we think this is just generally applicable, and it's not just China, but worldwide. And what about the outlook for China in the economy and the ready availability of capital? Are you still confident that China will have a soft enough landing for that、mm. to continue?、Uh, that I'm not sure because it largely depends on the speed at which the technology-based oriented businesses can become a significant part of the economy. So today, China is essentially two economies. One is traditional, is slowing down; another is、uh, entrepreneurial, technology-oriented, and is growing rapidly. But today the ratio is still disproportionate. So no matter how fast in this year, no matter how fast technology sector increases, it's not enough to offset the slower slower growth in the traditional economy. 
So the point at which technology growth can start to drive the overall growth, then I would become uh, very optimistic. But I don't think we're there today. I, I just don't know. One way of looking at this is it's going to free up people from menial jobs. Another is that it's creating a large lump of unemployment and that there are no solutions for this and that the technology community, while very good at solving its own problems, is not very good at even beginning to look at the problems of disruption. Is that a fair point? Uh, It is. I think it will create a lot of replacements for people. I think the machines will replace most of the repetitive, not interesting types of jobs. And, And when that happens, maybe it's meant to be that the jobs that are replaced will push humans to work on things that are maybe deeper, more interesting, people are more passionate about, or maybe into areas that are less hot in the job market but machines cannot do, such as uh, music, art, uh, philosophy, poetry. The reason I'm still somewhat optimistic is because this AI will generate a lot of um, uh, money because all those uh, people replaced by machines, the machines will do a you know, three times better job with more efficiency and no fatigue, and they'll be working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it will generate a lot of money, and that is money that we can spend uh, at the very least to improve our education system, job placement, uh, retraining, and uh, maybe in the worst case, uh, social welfare for some percentage of people who choose not to uh, re-educate themselves. Now, while Kaifu Li is bullish about the prospects for the tech sector, it's an area which thrives on spotting and curating the best ideas, and they can be hard to see coming. That's also a particular challenge for those in the business of prediction. Daniel, what's our approach? Well, I think you can get a sense of some of the early stage technology that is going to be developing rapidly. And one thing that people are particularly concerned about is the effect of technology on jobs in the world of work. And in the world in 2017, we try to look at some of the more future oriented jobs, even categories of work that don't even exist at the moment, but which are going to be coming along in the future, things like bot wranglers or synthetic tissue engineers and the way that all these things are changing very rapidly not always in the terrifying way that many people fear but often in ways that are creating new opportunities. To get a sense of that balance between opportunity and disruption we asked our tech guru the economist's deputy editor Tom Standage to pick out three predictions for the year to come. Here comes number one then. I think one of the big tech stories next year is going to be the rise of Snapchat. Over 100 million people use Snapchat every day. Plans to go public in the first quarter of 2017. And I think the way to think about Snapchat, if you aren't familiar with it, is it's sort of the anti-Facebook. Facebook is all about posting stuff onto your Facebook profile that stays there forever so that it can say, did you know that seven years ago today you were doing this? Whereas Snapchat is about ephemeral messaging where you send silly stuff to your friends. Whatever you uh, are used to with Facebook, Snapchat kind of subverts and upends and inverts all of these uh, ways of doing things. And that's why it's so appealing. And I think they're a company that's really going places in 2017 and beyond that. From now on, I don't think there'll be the slightest trouble with your robot. Your domestic problems are completely solved. 
The second area I would look at in 2017 is artificial intelligence. Clearly, there's been a lot of progress on this in recent years. AI systems have become better than humans at things like lip reading, playing Go, which is an Asian board game, transcribing text. These are all things that machines have been terrible at for a very, very long time. Humans were much better. And just this year, the machines have got better at it. So there are going to be more examples of this in 2017. Self-driving cars are the area that has sort of the most visible manifestation of this and also sort of embody what people are most worried about. What about all those taxi drivers, all those truck drivers? Isn't AI? are going to be destroying jobs because it can do things that you previously absolutely had to have a human to do. That's a concern that we're going to hear a lot more about in the coming year. And my final prediction for 2017 concerns personalised medicine. We are getting to the point now where we can use very, very precise genomic techniques to figure out what's going on with specific diseases. We're very much at the beginning of this process. Um, someone once described it to me as, you know, the beginning of a sort of 300-year runway. It's as if in the 17th century people, you know, looked through microscopes for the first time and, and saw that there was a whole world of tiny bugs, you know, swimming around in water and so on. We really are just at the beginning of figuring this stuff out. But I think we are going to see some significant advances in what's possible in medicine as a result of our knowledge of genomics during 2017. There's disruption afoot too in science and technology and no area is more fraught than the debate over climate change. The warming of the earth poses an enormous threat. The Paris Agreement was signed to combat it but the political forces needed to take that forward are looking shaky at best. Tom Standage sat down with our environment correspondent to see what lies ahead for the climate in 2017. Well, I'm here now with our environment correspondent, Miranda Johnson, to discuss her climate predictions for 2017. Welcome, Miranda. Hi, Tom. Let's start with the sort of scientific aspect. What can we expect next year based on what we've seen in the past few years? So 2016 is set almost certainly to be the hottest year on record. Potentially 2017 could once more trump that. So roughly then things are sort of getting hotter and worse. What about the politics of all this, though? Because clearly Donald Trump arriving in the White House is going to have some impact on America's climate policy. But how widespread is that actually going to be? No one quite knows, obviously, what Donald Trump's energy policies are going to be. We know that Scott Pruitt is going to be head of the Environmental Protection Agency in America and that he has often fought regulation. And so that could stymie American efforts to cut back emissions, which in turn could look bad when America's not doing its part to curb pollution when other countries under the Paris deal we saw signed last year are. Looking more broadly at the geopolitical picture then, what does this mean about leadership in climate policy? Hillary Clinton during the campaign talked about making America into a clean energy superpower. Clearly, that's not going to happen under Donald Trump. But does that mean the opportunity is there for someone else? Yes, I think the opportunity is certainly up for grabs. And I think that China is in the best position to take it. I also think that given its own commitments to install massive amounts of solar in the next few years, it's also producing the panels and other elements of technology needed at scale to bring down the costs for everybody else. So it will become the clean energy superpower. Miranda Johnson, thanks very much. Thank you. Just in case things go badly wrong on Earth, though, we're keeping an eye on the broader universe. Daniel Franklin consulted science correspondent Tim Cross. So much for our world in 2017. What about other worlds? It's a 
big year coming up for exploring exoplanets. That's right, it is. So、um, exoplanets, just in case anyone's not sure, these are worlds that orbit stars other than our sun. And they've been one of the hottest topics in astronomy for the past few years. But 2017 is going to see the launch of a new satellite called TESS, which is going to really sort of change how these things are done. If you actually wanted to visit one of these planets,、uh, having spotted it as being of extreme interest. How would you set about getting there, and how long might it take you? So we actually know there is an exoplanet around Proxima Centauri, which, as the name suggests, is the closest star to the sun, and that's roughly four light years away. Which means it takes will take a beam of light four years to get there. It's it's an incredible distance. So most of these we have no chance of visiting at any point in the near future. But there was a Russian chap called Yuri Milner, who's、um, he's a billionaire and a, a science aficionado. And he's sort of cooking up a plan to send a very tiny space probe to Proxima Centauri, and propelling it there with sort of giant banks of Earth-mounted lasers that would let you send a really sort of tiny starship the size of a lunchbox or something like that. It would get there within about about twenty years,、um, go zipping through the system, and sort of hurriedly send us back some data before it sails off into infinity and is never heard from again. So it's not all going to happen in 2017, but perhaps the start of the process. Exactly. Tim, thanks very much. Thanks, Daniel. Now, disruption and change in 2017 won't only hinge on invention in the realm of science, but also on the ready money that backs it up. Coming up, we'll be hearing from Jean Liu, the president of China's taxi and ride-sharing titan Didi, and Jui Wang, the CEO of beauty beer moth Elizabeth Arden. We do want to look our best for you at this time of year. But first, the broader business trends in the world of Trump. One intriguing prediction on this came from Patrick Fowles, our U.S. business editor, who sees 2017 as the year when an art of the deal president may, nevertheless, see the end of an era of deal making in American business. It's been a golden age for mega mergers and aggressive acquisition. Businesses bought, sold, and combined at a hyperactive rate, but could that be about to change? Our business and finance editor Andrew Palmer called up Patrick in New York to discuss his theory. So we are looking at the world of business in 2017, and you make the prediction that a gigantic wave of deal making is about to come to an end. Why do you say that? Deal making tends to be intensely cyclical, so we reckon there have been seven big waves over the last hundred and fifty years or so. Most of them in the U.S., but also some of that global. We think that's going to come to a halt next year for three reasons. One is the rise of, of populist protectionism, and you've seen in several places, including Britain, for example, where the new government has said it will take a more critical attitude towards foreign takeovers of British firms. Parallel trends happening in Canada, in Australia, and in some parts of Asia. So that's reason one. The second reason is to do with question marks over multinational companies. They've performed less well than you might have expected over the last few years. And then the last reason is is the rise of concerns about antitrust, and particularly in the U.S., companies have become much bigger, and we think politicians are going to get a bit nervous about too much concentration. And if the deal making is in abeyance, what does that mean? That boardrooms are sticking to their knitting, working out how to improve their operations, presumably. 
Yeah, the big conundrum in the US is essentially, does the current mode of operation, which is cost-cutting efficiency and using those bumper profits to, to buy back loads and loads of your own shares, whether that switches into a more sort of pro-growth animal spirits mentality, and that would involve essentially investing more in, in your own business and seeking to grow and hire more people and stick more, more money in the ground. And what the stock market has been doing since the Trump election victory is pricing in a, a more pro-growth mentality. So small companies have done very well here in the US and some of the more cyclical industries that are exposed to how the economy does, they've picked up as well. That pro-growth environment, that, that assumption of a, of a sort of shinier future, is that one that, that you share in the wake of the Trump victory? Well, I've, I've talked to quite a lot of um, business people over the last couple of weeks, and I would say most of them do feel there is some substance to the new administration probable agenda in, in a couple of ways. One is the proposals to change the tax system here. And I think by any objective metric, the way companies are taxed and the way they can ship money back from abroad into the US has become horrendously complex and penalizing. Big reform of that could have a positive impact on how companies behave in terms of investment. The other thing that business people here do feel very strongly is, is just the whole sort of issue of red tape and regulation, which over President Obama's administration, they feel has grown a lot. The obvious cloud over all of this is protectionism, but do bear in mind that the US economy is relatively closed, which means that a lot of companies are actually not that affected by what happens in terms of trade. Well, it's nice to have a brief note of optimism. Patrick, thank you. Thank you. While business may be becoming more optimistic, broader trends in economics and monetary policy will end up defining the outlook for real growth in the year to come. For this one, Andrew brought in economics correspondent Sumeya Keynes. Hi, Sumeya. Hi, Andrew. We're going to talk about the outlook for economics in 2017. And the backdrop here is the rise of the populists, Trump, Brexit, et al. How do you think that flows through into the worlds of economics this year? So I think looking at the year ahead, the, the huge theme is that this political upheaval that we've seen in 2016 is going to show itself in huge, huge economic uncertainty for 2017. I suppose the other thing we've been worrying about for many years now is this kind of that low interest rate world and the ability to kind of move away from the zero interest rates and inject a bit more vim into the global economy. You know, at the moment, we're in the middle of the equity markets on a huge tear because they think Trump, as he comes in, is going to somehow perform this economic miracle in America. What's, what's your take on that? Are you optimistic about that? So I think the big question for Donald Trump is, you know, he's been talking about these tax cuts. Everyone's been saying he's going to go on some kind of Keynesian fiscal stimulus, although I think calling it Keynesian assigns it an intellectual framework that isn't really there. So that, you know, they're saying he might kind of pump money into the economy and maybe that will raise inflation. And it would be kind of funny if this this thing that, you know, economists were united in, in saying how awful it would be, would be the one thing that would kind of lift lift the US economy up from its low interest rate situation. The effects of Trump on inflation and moving us and, you know, allowing the Fed to tighten and kind of getting away from the zero lower bound, that seems to me secondary to the kind of primary effects that, that Trump's other policies might have on the economy. You might say that having seen central banks bear the burden of trying to stimulate activity for years on end, there is now signs of 
governments trying to pick up some of the slack, using fiscal policy a bit more to, to, to stimulate. So over the last few years, we've seen this combination of quite tight fiscal policy and quite loose monetary policy. And in 2017, most expect that to reverse. So we're going to see the Fed and, and maybe even the ECB tightening policy relative to where it has been. And governments, particularly Donald Trump and you know maybe Theresa May, loosening fiscal policy relative to where it's been. Supposing prices start rising, the question is whether that feeds through into higher wages. It's unclear, given how weak labour is, whether they can push up their wages. And that's ultimately will be the big determinant of living standards over the next year. Sumeya, thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to Andrew, Sumeya and Patrick. And if you've got any of your own predictions for 2017, we'd love to hear them. Tweet us at Economist Radio or send us an email to radio at economist.com. Now, while we were in Hong Kong, Daniel was joined on stage at The Economist's World in Gala Dinner by Jean Liu, the president of Didi. Having just fought off rival Uber in China, Didi's sheer size, it's the largest such company in the world, make it and Jean forces to be reckoned with. Well, Didi, her company, is an extraordinary one in China. It's grown remarkably fast. It's emblematic of the huge changes that are happening in China. It's actually part of the great shift of of China's industry towards a more service consumerist economy. So she is absolutely in the thick of things. And again, you feel this confidence of large Chinese companies that the future is really in many ways going to be theirs. So let's eavesdrop on some of that conversation between Jean and Daniel on stage at our event in Hong Kong. Uh, Jean Liu, please welcome, and we look forward very much to having a conversation. 2017, what's in prospect for you in the year ahead? Well, for, for our company, for DD, our top priority is to keep investing in artificial intelligence. That's always the secret weapon, how we can do our business. Why is that so important? Why is that the, you know, the frontier for you? Uh, and what can it what can it deliver for you? Sure. Uh, the problems, the difficulty level, the scale, the complexity of the problems we are resolving in China is just simply much, much bigger than any other region of the world. People probably don't have appreciation of how bigger cities in China are compared to other side. We have 44 mega cities. By saying mega cities, meaning population of over 2 million people, And Beijing, the size of Beijing is 20 times of New York City. So every day when I travel from east to west, I was like going through six cities in the States. Yeah, and the traffic is just as bad as I was there yesterday. (laughs) And the traffic, you know, I think a lot of people have experienced the traffic issue in Beijing. So how do we really deliver a ride to everyone when they need it? There are 30 million population in Beijing, how do we resolve it? You can you can never match supply with demand. The goal for our companies, you know, we want to push for transformation of transportation. We also want to push for the evolution of resources because that's the practical issue facing the whole humankind. So how can we put more people into fewer cars, yeah. essentially? So that's the AI. So you have a, vi- a vision that artificial in- intelligence will help transform. Uh, basically transform the planet in a crucial sense. Exactly. You're also uh, uh, obviously a leading example of uh, a woman who's succeeded in business. So how do you 
uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about your own experience in China of, of, of being a top executive as a woman and whether uh, you are typical or whether there is still a lot of work to be done on that front. Sure. Well, I always feel to be the lucky one to you know, start uh, my career, especially, I guess, in China. And as a woman entrepreneur, I, I actually feel it's always encouraging. People always encourage women to participate more, to, you know, to take more initi initiative in business. Uh, people, most people, I guess, here don't know uh, of the data that surprised me, which is the new startup in China right now, more than 50% are founded by women. That's just a very astonishing number. Um, I guess a lot of them starting from selling things on e-commerce platform, but it's a very good it's a very good start. And I think internet technology actually narrows the gap between what things women can do and what things they cannot do in the in the modern you know stage. So I feel particularly lucky. And but I I do think personally there's a lot of challenges. Uh, for women, I have three kids, so I always find it extremely challenging. How do I find time to go home to spend with my kids? Um, so that's why we have a women's network in DD, which we try to care for women's career development and personal development. We share common issues. How do we, you know, find quality time with kids? How do we think about, you know, transition in life? Um, so I think there are always areas are, are to work on. Are there specifically Chinese issues? I mean, much of what you were just talking about, for example, combining family with success in career, um, this is something that, that is juggled with everywhere. But are there specific um, uh, Chinese, perhaps cultural questions, cultural attitudes that women have to grapple with in China compared with, say, in the United States or in Europe? Actually, surprising, I don't feel so. I think maybe 30 years ago, before our generation, but if people look around, I know so many great women leaders, and we talk about topics like that. Uh, Lucy Pong from Alipay, you know, we, we just have so many examples. Um, so I, I actually don't feel that's the case Good. in China. A very different kind of business leader, but very important to those of us who spend a lot of time and attention on our facial beauty, is Dewey Wong. Well, Dewey Wong, I think, is particularly intriguing for a number of reasons. One of them is that she's a Singaporean who works as a top executive in New York. So she brings the perspective of someone who, who combines those cultures. She's president of Elizabeth Arden, so the beauty industry, which is a fascinating one as well, is something that she sees the future trends in and has views not just of women in the industry, but also actually something that I was intrigued by, what it means for men too. I notice it's changed your daily ritual. <laughs> what do you think has driven the rise of female business leadership in Asia? It must be something that when you started your own corporate ascent was still seen as something extraordinary. And now, of course, we, we see many female leaders emerging. What is driving that and what does it need to support it further? Right. I think, you know, the conversations are there. The engagement is there. There are a lot more female and women organizations that truly try to push the agenda in the forefront, whether it's with boards or whether it's, you know, moving women up the ladder in the corporate world. My theory is that 
a lot of women, they get to a certain level that their next level would probably be in senior management, but they are biased towards action. They really don't like the politics that comes with it, right? So what happens is they opt out, they develop their own company, and if you look at the beauty space, all of the innovations, all of the technology that is really hitting home hard in, in the world comes from emerging brands. And the established brands are eyeing all those brands, waiting for them to get to a certain level, acquires them, and the cycle repeats. So my theory is that women are actually very successful already. It's just that they are not given the credit because we don't see enough of them in Fortune, you know, 10, Fortune 20 companies. I'm going to ask you to range broadly. What are the big changes that you think will come? What are the changes that other people predict that you don't think will happen? I think some of the big changes is we've heard a lot about the digital space and the social media space and how you know that is the second coming. I do agree that it's a great communication tool, but what's going to happen in 2017 more and more is that it needs to deliver revenue. Companies have now taken 60% of their marketing dollars and put it into digital, but only 9% of it accounts for direct revenue. That's a very poor return on investment, no matter how you look at it. So I believe that until it, deliver, it, it can deliver the revenue, more and more companies are going to be very sensitive as to how to invest in it. And I have been one of the f- proponents of digital uh, you know, way back, uh, almost like six years ago. Uh, and I've always said, un- unless it equates to revenue, I'm not going to go further down that road. But now you have to give us something that you think is likely to happen. I think what is really likely to happen is that social commerce will become a very prevalent um, engagement tool, not only for the younger set, especially the the Gen Z who is looking to make extra pocket money, because this is not a multi-level marketing. This is really influencers that gives them the idea that, look, I have a product that I would really like to share with my friends, and I want to monetize that, because my opinion and my recommendation will not come for free. And I think more and more people are beginning to realize that it is not only companies that can really deliver um, business nature of this sort, but that individuals through social commerce can really validate for themselves how big or how small they want to take their business to or their own you know, revenue stream to. And the last question, something you're extremely well placed to answer, what would you say are the best Asian ideas and approaches that companies in the West should think of adopting, uh, looking into 2017 and beyond. And if if you want to give an example on the other side of the street, please do. Okay. I think for Asian companies, there is a belief in longevity. And if you look at a lot of the Asian companies, they do do a long-term investment without mortgaging the future. And they're willing to go down that path and sometimes have many years of losses, so to speak. I think Western companies would benefit greatly to kind of understand that and not be controlled every quarter by what happens you know, with their performance and therefore they live and die by their stock prices. I think that kind of is very short-term thinking. The other way around is obviously a double-edged sword. You cannot spend forever investing in something because obviously, again, we come back to the business nature of revenue generation and P&L needs. And I think for Asian companies, it will behoove them to kind of adopt some of those structural discipline in in, uh, financing to kind of get an idea of how do you get there faster because build and they will come is a nice story to tell, but sometimes it never comes. Our thanks to Jui Wong, 
Well, we're coming to the end of our World in Invention tour. But one thing we can be very sure of when it comes to predictions, some of them will be wrong. We're very honest about that, Daniel, aren't we? Well, I do go through the rather humbling experience each year of looking back and taking stock of what we got right and what we got wrong. And, of course, we get plenty wrong. It would be boring, wouldn't it, if we got everything right? There are so many variables and things that can move in different ways that you're bound to get a lot wrong. In the world in 2016, I think, we had some pretty big misses, it had to be said. Perhaps most important of all, we did not predict that Donald Trump would be elected president of the United States. He was, in fact, entirely missing from our collage of characters on the cover. And we thought that Brexit would narrowly be defeated. Now, I would defend all this and say, actually, it's still worth doing the prediction thing because you focus people's minds, you get people thinking uh, on what will be coming up. If you look at our Brexit uh, articles from last year, for example, although we got the result wrong, the analysis was pretty good. It, It gave a pretty good steer on all the factors that were going to come into play in that election. And it did say, look, if it turns on immigration, which to a large degree it did, then David Cameron and his campaign to remain may well be in trouble. And I would like to just take my hat off to one person who is Doug Miller of Globescan, who we had a little piece from him on what you could tell on the basis of opinion polling on on the future. And one of the things he pointed to was the drastic decline in the level of trust in American politics and institutions. And he likened this to environmental devastation and said, as a result of this, you, you're almost bound to get a big political shock in the year ahead. And sure enough, that's what we got in Donald Trump. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much, Anne. And the shock of Trump is going to be first up next week as we look at the world in instability. We'll be hearing from the prime ministers of Bhutan and Sri Lanka about leadership in the Donald's world. There'll also be an in-depth look at the future of immigration and refugees. And will Brexit be hard or soft? Our Brexit barometer will reveal all. Don't miss it. For now, we hope you enjoyed the world in invention and that you're cooking up your own ways to reinvent the world in 2017. In London, this is The Economist.